The old pilot's plain tales. The average pilot. There's a saying that goes, to be damned by faint praise. It's an English idiom which expresses, in an oxymoronic manner, no, not an idiot under an oxygen mask, although I've met a few of those, but a contradiction in terms, if you will, that refers to faint and half-hearted praise being more harmful than actual criticism. The term can be traced back to its first appearance in print in Pope's poem, Epistle to Dr. Arbuthnot. Damn with faint praise, assent with civil leer, and without sneering, teach the rest to sneer. Willing to wound and yet afraid to strike, just hint a fault and hesitate dislike. So, should you be asked what your fellow pilot is like, and you reply, oh, they're just average, eyebrows will shoot up. What, you might think, only average? As if being in the middle of a span of ability is a bad thing. Indeed, in our times of superfluous and effusive praise of anything and everything, nobody wants to be average. For every year of my productive military career, my logbook would be presented to the powers that be with my annual flying figures correctly correlated and penned in red, with a blank space for an assessment of ability. It was here that the boss would, with a sweep of his pen, sum up my entire year's efforts. Completed courses would generally end with the single word proficient, whereas an annual assessment could travel the complete gambit from below average, low average and average to high average, above average and the rarely achieved pinnacle of ability exceptional. But you had to be either very junior and inexperienced to be only average, even though logic would dictate that most pilots should fit into that category. If I may digress for a moment, the law of averages is a commonly held belief that an outcome will, over time, balance any past deviation from the presumed average. This leads to the gambler's fallacy, when one becomes convinced that, after a number of events have occurred in one direction, the opposite result is more and more likely to happen. In reality, an inanimate object such as a spinning coin has no memory of past events, and the probability of a particular result is the same for the first toss as it is for the 100th. Getting back to my story, we must first delve into the history books to discover who discovered averages. Firstly, let me define the term. An average is a single number which is taken to represent the value of a list of different numbers. To get an average, all we have to do is add up all the numbers in a list and then divide the total by however many there are in the list. It's also referred to as the mean. The chap often credited with developing this mathematical concept was a Belgian fellow who went by the name of Ketelet. A smarty pants, he was the very first to receive a doctorate in mathematics from the University of Ghent 
which he did at the age of only 23. He was Belgium's Astronomer Royal, and like many astronomers, felt the need to measure the speed of the celestial objects which he could see whizzing around the night sky. This was achieved by timing an object's passage as it moved between two marks etched on his telescope. The trouble was, it was very hard to get two readings that were the same and if you put a bunch of astronomers into a room, they would spend hours arguing about whose measurement was the right one. Quetelet solved the problem by reasoning that if the readings were all combined, they could get a single average measurement. He had devised the method of averages. Flushed with his success, our Belgian friend went on to average all sorts of things, and developed a number of theories from his results. In 1840, he got hold of the chest measurements from 5,738 Scottish soldiers. On averaging them, he calculated what he believed to be the perfect dimension for a Scottish soldier's chest, that of 39.75 inches. Anyone who didn't achieve this figure must, by his logic, be an imperfect example, an inferior and mediocre Scottish soldier. There was nothing wrong with his mathematics, but I think we can all now look at his conclusions askance. However, his theories of the average person persisted and we can see them pop up every now and then. Quetelet's theories also influenced the American military. During the American Civil War, President Abraham Lincoln decided that the Union Army needed more information about its soldiers, so he authorised the largest anthropomorphic study in the history of the world. Every Union soldier was measured physically, medically and morally, and then in explicit obedience to Catalay's new science, averages were calculated. These averages informed the distribution of food rations, the design of weapons, and even the fit of military uniforms, and would form the basis for the American military's long-standing philosophy of standardised design. Indeed, uniform sizings would eventually find their way into civilian clothing, which is why we all now choose between large, medium and small, etc. Enter the world of aviation, and we find Catelet's influence all over the place. Everything from flying clothing to helmet design sprang from the size of the average aviator. Cockpit layouts followed the same idea, with the instruments made clearly visible for the average pilot. Controls were positioned for an average man's reach and leg length, and the seat made for someone of average height. All well and good, it seemed, but as the First World War concluded, air forces around the world were looking at their losses with sharp focus. The Royal Flying Corps, for example, recorded that for every 100 aviators killed whilst flying, only two had met their deaths at the hands of the enemy. Eight had died from a problem with their aircraft, either a mechanical fault or structural failure. The remaining 90 
perished as a result of what the Corps blandly described as the pilot's own individual failure. Effectively, a 90% accident rate put down to pilot error. Something obviously had to be done to reduce this appalling waste of life. Various avenues were taken to improve both the aircraft and the pilot. Aeromedical research was undertaken to establish how to test and quantify a pilot's physical dimensions as well as his physiological performance to establish how to pick the best average person for the job. However, the accident rates remained unacceptable through the Second World War as well. Indeed, on one bleak day in the United States in the late 40s, 17 pilots crashed for no apparent reason. Their fellow pilots and superiors had no explanation, since these men were considered good pilots, but the investigations continually blamed them for crashing. The late 1940s saw a vast expansion in the size of the US Air Force, which by now had become its own branch of the military, and the cost, not just in lives, was unacceptable. Even without war, pilots continued to die as they appeared unable to control their machines. It was a baffling situation, and the high death rate in the Air Force was a mystery for many years. But after initially blaming the pilots and their training programs, someone suggested that perhaps the pilots were just the wrong size. After all, the last study to find the best size for an average pilot had been back in 1926. With better diet and standards of living, perhaps the average post-war pilot was heavier and taller nowadays. Enter 23-year-old Lieutenant Gilbert Daniels. Now, Daniels wasn't a pilot. He'd never flown an aircraft. He was a very junior researcher. Looking at the problem, he had discovered that the USAF were measuring pilots in an attempt to establish a new average pilot. Indeed, at Wright Air Force Base in Ohio, more than 4,063 pilots had been subject to the measurements of 140 different dimensions of limbs, head, torso, feet, even thumb length and crotch height too, but no, they didn't measure that. Daniels took a close look at the pages and pages of data and had something of a eureka moment. Was there such a thing as an average pilot? To test his hypothesis, Daniels looked at the ten most relevant physical dimensions of pilots from the study and created an average pilot based on the middle third of the range of dimensions. The resulting average pilot varied in height from 5 foot 7 inches to 5 foot 11 inches. With this range in hand, Daniel then looked at the entire pool of 4,063 pilots and tried to match individual pilots to his average pilot model. He was right. Not one single pilot matched the average. As his report put it, 
If you've designed a cockpit to fit the average pilot, you've actually designed it to fit no one. The tendency to think in terms of the average man is a pitfall into which many persons blunder. It's virtually impossible to find an average airman, not because of any unique traits in this group, but because of the great variability of bodily dimensions which is characteristic of all men. So, if the previous design criteria of building cockpits to fit the average pilot was flawed, what could be done? The Air Force's response was quick and effective. Engineers and aircraft designers were tasked with building cockpits to fit a wide range of sizes by including adjustable rudder pedals, seats that could be altered in position, helmet straps that could be adjusted, and flight suits of many different sizes. Pilot performance improved immediately, and the accident rates fell accordingly. But this was just the start of a whole new world of ergonomics in the cockpit. Instruments were now laid out in a consistent and logical manner, depending on how often the pilot would need to refer to them. The centre of his scan was the artificial horizon that had to be checked most often to confirm the aircraft's attitude. Close by would be the altimeter and the airspeed indicator, usually to the right and left. Below was the compass, and in the bottom corners of a standard six-instrument layout were the vertical speed gauge and the turn and slip. Engine instruments were laid out in rows, one row for each engine, so that an unusual needle position could be easily compared with the other engines. In some cases, the instruments were turned, so that in normal conditions, all the needles were pointing in the same direction. Controls were also clustered, so that all the switches relating to a system were grouped together, and those needed frequently, or had to be available in case of an emergency, were kept to hand. Items that only needed attention rarely or when on the ground were moved to more remote locations. Misidentification of controls was also a common problem until they were given unique shapes allied to their function and made to operate in different directions from each other. For example, during the Second World War, crash landings were a particular problem for the Boeing B-17 Flying Fortress. The planes were functioning as designed, and the pilots were highly trained, but they made basic errors. In 1942, a young psychology graduate, Alphonse Chapinis, joined the Army Air Force Aeromedical Lab as their first psychologist. Chapinis noticed that the flaps and the landing gear had identical controls that were co-located and were operated in sequence. In the high workload period of a landing, pilots frequently retracted the gear instead of the flaps. This hardly ever occurred to pilots of other types of aircraft. Japanese fixed a small rubber wheel to the landing gear lever and a small wedge shape to the flap lever, and this kind of pilot error almost completely disappeared. Colours were chosen to represent functions such as yellow and black stripes for ejector seat handles, canopy jettison levers, stores and tank jettison buttons. Even cockpit colours were changed 
from the all-black interior of early aircraft to colours that were easier on the eye for long flights. Instruments were given bands of colour to indicate ranges of operation so that they could be checked at an instant without having to read a figure and relate that to a limit. As the physiology of the body when subjected to the forces present in high-performance aircraft was better understood, more progress was made. The body's vestibular system of sensing motion, gravity and balance were investigated and the dangers of vestibular illusions, somatogravic and somatogyral illusions discovered. One such illusion is the Coriolis trap, which occurs when a pilot looks down and to one side, when in a rapid turn, resulting in an almost unbearable sensation that the aircraft is rolling, pitching and yawing all at the same time. The entire subject of design, ergonomics and human performance became wrapped up into what we now call human factors, part of which includes pilot education to gain a solid understanding of the limitations of a body that's designed to operate with its feet firmly planted on the ground. Aircrew now have knowledge of the workings of the inner ear, its auditory components and its vestibular apparatus. They know how the body's sleep cycles work and how to combat jet lag, circadian lows and both short-term and long-term fatigue. Mental health as well as physical health has also become a subject of open discussion as aircrew learn that the mind must be nurtured as well as the body. Looking forward, as technology on the flight deck changes, we have new challenges. From the basic cockpits of yesteryear, pilots can now suffer from information overload when the plethora of electronic displays presents too much data at one time. Software-driven screens can be easily rewritten so that the pilot is presented with frequently changing layouts and functions. This requires them to unlearn established knowledge and become proficient with new designs, only to have them change again a short while later when another update occurs. Electronic manuals and flight books are amended automatically and very frequently as changes, both small and large, are automatically uploaded. It becomes a constant struggle to ensure that new information is noted. But the human body certainly has its limitations and having learned about the dangers of assuming that there is such a thing as an average pilot, we have entered a new realm where gadgets are king and the mass of information available can blind us from what is important. If you enjoyed this tale, then please let your friends know about it by mentioning it on social media and perhaps by leaving a review on Apple Podcasts or your podcatcher of choice. Plain Tales is a featured segment of the Airline Pilot Guy show. You can find us at airlinepilotguy.com.